Hello and welcome to Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. Each week, you'll join Messiah's Upper Room Bible Study Class led by Pastor Jim Oddy. This week, we are continuing our series over the Ten Commandments, titled Foundational Truth for a Confused World. Enjoy. Us as work is... And sometimes uh, we get those out of whack, don't we? We, we? we get prioritized one way or the other. And the way that the scriptures always come at this is from the perspective of, uh, of balance. But one of the, the verses that really jumped off the page for me uh, in the early service was from Ecclesiastes. This whole thing that Solomon, you know, he's toward the end of his life. And he's looking back on his life and he's thinking, you know, what an idiot I was to think that all the things that I thought were important really aren't all that important. And, and so this last verse of Ecclesiastes 5 verse 20 really jumped off the page for me. And it, it, this always happens. Um, I've read these verses like how many times in 40 years? You know, how many times? Because we go through a three-year cycle on the readings. And every time I do, it's like, Read, 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 whammo, get hit with something. And so that's what happened to me uh, this morning. So he says in verse 20, he says, for he, he's talking here about the guy that has worked all his life and he's, he's earned a lot of money or he's gained a lot of possessions and he's figured out that he can't take it with him. It's like, you know, you come into the world with nothing and you, you go out of the world with nothing and you're thinking, well, why did I, you know, why did I expend all that energy in trying to acquire all these things? And so he, he says in verse 19, everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. So that's what he's talking about. And then I just love this last verse. He says, for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Now you think about that for a second. What, would, what does it take to have that where God keeps you occupied with joy in your heart? So much so that with all the idiocy that's going on in the world today, you are not consumed by it. In fact, I don't know, maybe you don't even notice it. Or at least maybe it's not, it doesn't have the impact on you that it would have on others because the joy that's in your life as a result of God doing that in your life, that that occupies you. Um, the closest thing that I can come to that in just my own, not life necessarily, but a witness that a person gave to me one time when I was in uh, Nacogdoches, there was a, uh, a lady who was a shut in who lived in, uh, in one of the small towns. If you know anything about East Texas, there's a lot of small towns. And uh, she lived in Kilgore, which was some miles away from, uh, from where I was in Nacogdoches. And there wasn't a Lutheran church there, so they said, well, can you come and visit her? So I did. Well, her name, can't even remember her name. What was her name, Vicki? Do you remember? Um, she was a, uh, a school teacher, had been a school teacher for years and years and years and years and years and years. And uh, when I went, first went to see her, she was in a little bit of a dementia state. So there was just sort of the beginnings of that. And when I went to see her at her, her little apartment where she lived, I walked in 
And there was her Bible, which was more tattered than any Bible I had ever seen. And she knew her Bible way better than I knew mine, which was kind of frankly embarrassing. But anyway, another story. So anyway, because she had a little bit of dementia, she, she couldn't remember all of the sorrows that she ever had had in her life. And she had had a bunch because I, I had a little bit of background uh, story on her. All she could remember was that Jesus loved her. Now, I don't know that you have to have dementia in order to get to that point, right? But it is a, sort of that idea. Imagine what that would be like. That with all the troubles that go on, and, and, her, and she was in her 90s. So, you know, there were good things and bad things that would have happened in her life. That's, that's kind of the normal thing for life. But all she could remember, and then all she could talk about was how God loved her and Jesus died for her and kind of all those cool things. To me, that's kind of what this is. That there are so many things that can uh, absorb your life. There's so many things that we hear about. There's so many things that we engage in. Um, there's so many things that, that demand that, that we give attention to them. And those are good things. I mean, it's good that we are not checked out. You know, we're, we're engaged in life. But, um, wow, what an amazing thing that is when God keeps you occupied with joy. Whew. That seems to me to give you a new lens through which you see things. Because to some degree, we all are exposed to the same thing. You can't hardly go and watch TV these days and on the news or however you get your information. And there's not just a ton of negativity and there's people acting weird and all kinds of stuff going on uh, that just is very um, discombobulating if you want to think about it that way. So we can choose to focus on that and be governed by that and be driven by that and be affected by that or... We can focus in on the fact that God keeps you occupied on the joy and the joy is in him. So anyway, all of that I was thinking about during the sermon. So what was the rest of the sermon about? I have no idea, <laughs> but let me tell you. Oh, I remember. And so then the other thing that struck me was when Pastor Coleman uh, mentioned that his dad used to go to the seminary basketball games. <laughs> So uh, as uh, Pastor Coleman and I were walking out, I, we always shake hands and say, you know, high five. And so then after that, I, I looked at him, I said, now, did your dad actually see us win a game? I mean, you know, um, because when I was in, when he and I were in the seminary playing together, the first two games we won, we were undefeated. We should have stopped there. <laughs> Because at the end of the season, our record was 2 and 19. So, so, yeah, so there was a lot of character building that went on in those years. And, uh, and then the other thing, he, what he talked about, the fact that his dad is the one who influenced him to become a Cardinal fan. And did you notice the slight little confession of faith that he gave then when he said that, that then, therefore, that he has learned to love the Cardinals. Did you catch that yes. slight little mistake that he made when he said that? <laughs> because I have known this for years, that even though he claims publicly he has two teams, you know, Cardinals and Rangers, and he's happy to say our team when he goes to a Ranger game, I know the truth, okay? <laughs> 
And now the truth has come out publicly in a sermon. So there you go. And if not, it's for sure on the podcast. Okay. Yeah. Yes. And your dad and his dad were in seminary? Yeah. My dad and, and Alvin were both uh, classmates. Yeah. They were at the same time. Yeah. Isn't that cool? Yeah. I know. I'm like so weird. So, and then, so my dad played uh, basketball. That was his sport. I think Alvin played uh, baseball. I think that was his sport. So, yeah. And so here we are, like how many years later? So, yeah, there's all kinds of weird stuff with that. And uh, if we had known at the time, you know, when we were in school together at both at the senior college and then also in the seminary, if we had known, but of course you, you only know what you know and how God works things out. Isn't it kind of cool how that works out? Okay. Well, let's look at, uh, the, uh, our, our, our material for this uh, for today, as we kind of work through the third, uh, third commandment again, remember the Sabbath day to, uh, to keep it holy. Last week, we talked about this idea that's still kind of percolating in my mind that the first three commandments are clustered in such a way that when our devotion is, and as our devotion is to, to follow the first three, that what happens is we're blessed and gifted in such a way that that enables us to do four to 10. And so we're still kind of talking about that from that perspective, that the first commandment is all about uh, loving the Lord, your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. That's what it's all about. You shall have no other gods before me. But the thing that makes our God unique is that our God calls us his beloved. Nobody else's God does that. And so the reason why that's the significant thing that he's pointing to in life is, is that you want the God who calls you his beloved to be the God you're worshiping. And that that is what makes the difference in terms then of how you use his name and certainly today how his day is a bless a blessing to you that that when you when the lens through which you look at yourself and then others okay when that lens is is that no matter what happens in life you are beloved nothing changes that then that makes all the difference in the world because in the world people may or the world may say oh yeah we love you but there's usually another word in there but or as long as the world's love is not unconditional it's conditional it's on the idea that well if you do this if you are that if you become whatever then you have the love or the acceptance or the approval of the world but that's not how God works and so when I take that lens with me through uh, the idea then as we get into next week when we talk about how Uh, how we do our relationship with our parents and then in a broader sense how we do our relationship with with authority which is up in the air in the world today I don't know does anybody believe in authority today uh, in in some uh, good sense but that the difference that this lens makes in terms of dealing with uh, uh, the uncertain world that we live in so the first the first three commandments you see are clustered together number one we solely worship the God who calls you his beloved number two we guard the integrity of the connection between what you believe and what you speak is that important 
Does it matter that what you believe and what you speak have integrity or can you get, can, is it okay to just do what the world says as well? What I believe is one thing, but you know what I say or how I act, that's my, my public life. But you know, that has no bearing on my private life. That's the way the world thinks. A lot of people have bought into that myth. Yeah, Carl. Jesus said that he who believes in, in, uh, in, in confesses has eternal life. Yeah. Yeah. It's not just the personal interview, but also an outward thing. That's right, because then that gives, that's the, not the evidence of necessarily, but it certainly is a reinforcing of. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then number three, as we're sort of picking up uh, the continuation of, of number three, is practice the presence of God in the rhythm of your work and your spiritual rest. So again, it's remembering why God gave the commandments in the first place, what, was, what had already happened is that he had already shown his love. He had already delivered them from slavery. And basically what he's saying to them is, is now this is the great way to live your life because you're not slaves anymore. You're free. And so this is what free looks like. So God gave his commandments in the context of his love and gift of deliverance. And then our response or our obedience is a response of joy as opposed to the fear of his disapproval. What is your life like when you fear someone's disapproval? And that's something we all can relate to. When you're afraid that your mistakes will be highlighted on Sports Center, you know, or something like that. You know, what is it? See, what is that like? How many of you have ever taken piano lessons? We're going to have a support group for you later. <laughs> okay. And in your piano lessons, how many of you had a teacher that would sort of look over your shoulder to make sure that you're doing it right? We'll have an extra support group for that. And how many of you had to do recitals? Oh, now we get some noise. So what's, uh, what, what's the scary thing about that? Making mistakes. We don't mind making space. It's just doing it in front of people, right? Okay. Yeah, the fear of disapproval already makes it harder. Well, what difference does it make if somebody says to you, you know, no matter what, you're great. No matter what, I love you. No matter what, we're going to go get ice cream afterwards. You know, I mean, what difference does that make? You're not afraid then, are you, anymore? And that's the point that uh, he's making here. And then the, the last point is that remembers, the word remembrance, is a present time celebration that's based on God's act of deliverance in the past. So it's not just, oh, I have to remember something like a cognitive action. It's that I am enjoying this moment and the blessings of this moment because of what God did for me in the past. And that's the, that's the wonderful thing about that. Okay, we're good so far? Yeah, good so far? All right. So now, third commandment continues. So the foundational truth number 15. The rhythm that is presented in the third commandment is your week of service begins with spiritual rest, i.e., celebrating God's gift of grace, forgiveness, and mercy. Mercy. See, for Christians, the week begins on what day? Sunday. Now, that is a hard sell in our culture. Because everything in our culture calls uh, Saturday and Sunday the what? The weekend. So it's the end of the week. 
And so the idea is you work all, all week and then you get to your rest and then you have your rest and that's kind of your reward. And so then that plants in people's minds the idea that uh, you have given five days to whatever and now s- s- sixth and seventh day is for whom? Me. That's my day. From a Christian perspective, the week starts with our spiritual rest and we take that, the benefits of the spiritual rest into the week. And the biggest chunk of the spiritual rest is this, is that each Sunday we celebrate what? That we are beloved. And I got to take that message with me into my week because there are tons of voices in the, in the, in the world today that would suggest otherwise. All right. So that's the difference that that's going to make. Now, there's an interesting uh, story in the book of Matthew where Jesus encountered uh, some religious uh, leaders of the day, Pharisees, who were very uh, focused on the commandment that talked about the idea that this was a day of rest and that on that day you should not work, right? We looked at that last, last week in, in Exodus. And so, and there was a legitimate concern that they had which was that we want people to celebrate that, that day of rest. We want people to, uh, to be occupied with, with things that uh, matter in that spiritual way. And so, and, and plus, we don't want God to be upset with, uh, uh, with the different priorities that sometimes people have. So their intent was good, but over time, the focus shifted in terms of the Sabbath as a gift from God to the idea that the Sabbath became an obligation to God. And that came to head in this story in Matthew uh, 12. So if we'll take a look at that. It says, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on the Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Let me stop here for a second. Okay, so so when they went to Jesus and they said, can't you see that what your disciples are doing is unlawful? That word law there is not about what's in the Ten Commandments. He's talking about what's in the Talmud which we also talked about a little bit last week, that that was the collection of writings that the uh, scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law over the span of about 400 years had put together this sort of very detailed uh, delineation of what was work and what wasn't work. I thought it was interesting uh, last week, Marion pointed, uh, mentioned in, uh, for those of you that went to on the uh, Israel trip, that you had seen the, what, the issue with the elevator. Do you remember what that was? Well, I had somebody tell me this week, because I was over at the hospital visiting somebody, and I was in the elevator, and, you know, I'm just sitting there, in the, standing there in the elevator waiting, and other people walk in, and, of course, when other people walk in, they're always pushing the wrong buttons, right? 
all the buttons except my button, right? That's what, and so anyway, they're pushing the buttons and I remembered what she had said uh, last Sunday. And uh, somebody told me that in some Jewish circles, there are elevators that have all the buttons already pushed. So that then on the Sabbath, you don't have to do work by pushing the button. Is that, is that, do y'all, did y'all, I'm seeing kind of heads nod up and down on that. Yeah. So I thought that was very interesting, but that would make for a very long visit. Like if you were in like a 20 story, uh, a hospital. Whoa. Yeah. Tom. I wasn't here last Sunday. So did we discuss the, what's it called? The Sabbath mode that came on our new range. What? Our oven. Our oven. Your oven range has a, uh, a Sabbath mode. And so what is that mode? It does not go off completely. So that on the Sabbath day, you're not starting a fire. You're continuing to use a fire that's already been created. No, I don't think we covered that. I think we, I think we missed it. Did you hear what he said? The Sabbath mode on your stove? Wow. That's amazing. Wow. It's an LG. Does that mean like a Jewish model or something? Is that what that means? I don't know what that means. I have an LG phone and I don't know what about that. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, no. But, you know, if you listen to the podcast, you'll know what we talked about last week. So, yeah, I know that's right on your list today. Yes, I am there to remind you. That's for sure. Yes, absolutely. Although uh, there's a little bit of a delay. You might have to wait about three weeks till we get to this lesson. So, uh, but in the meantime, no, we didn't talk about that. So that's very, that is very interesting. So that, again, it sort of gives you a sense doesn't it though of where is the focus then see is is it, there's a slight little shift there away from the idea that th- this is a day of rest and spiritual rest in particular where we focus in on what God has done for us and frankly just take a break right and somehow the shift is moved from that to let's make sure that we do it right and God forbid that we would do it wrong that's, that's a slight shift, but that slight shift takes you from confidence into fear. And that would be the concern you see that, that he has here. We're going to check our stove when we get home to see if that's the case. Yes. I did start the crock pot this morning. Yeah, I'm doing a new diet thing now. So um, I'm trying all this new stuff. And so uh, anyway, I did food prep last night. Yeah, I'm starting to feel like a bit of a sous chef here. So uh, who knows? Who knows? But we're confident that we will, that I will, we, that I, that I will um, be able to be successful at this one. So we'll see. And I just lay it before you to be merciful here, as it says in the Bible, to be merciful. Okay. But anyway, that's what, so that's what Jesus see. That's what they're reacting to. They're not saying, when they say unlawful, they're talking about all of the big collection of the rules and regulations that had formed over the years. Okay, let's go down to uh, verse 9. So going from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, Will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. 
Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. And the Pharisees went out and they were so happy that Jesus had healed that man that they celebrated and had a big party, right? No, what happened? They went out and did what? Plotted on how they might kill Jesus. The shift, see, is complete. And you think, how could they, and then if we get kind of personal here, how, how could that happen to us? That that shift could become so complete that you have moved from joy in your life to fear. You've moved from the freedom of doing something that uh, helps others to the uh, obligation and some sense of feeling like you better do it a certain way or else. That you would miss the joy of somebody being healed of, uh, over something like that. Could that happen? Oh, yeah. It's the frog in the kettle, isn't it? It's not going to happen like, oh, cataclysmic moment, you're one thing and then you're the other. It's that slow over time. For them, it took 400 years. Maybe it only takes us a generation. I don't know. Thoughts? You know, the interesting thing is that it's, it's putting the third commandment. It's putting, I'm going to repeat what you said because I don't think anybody can hear you. It's yeah. putting the third commandment as being more important than the fifth commandment. Thou shalt not murder. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we do that all the time. We try to prioritize, mm -hmm. oh, I need to obey this more than that. Right. Or that we justify somehow that because I'm doing one of them better, that that makes up for the other one that I'm not doing. Or that I'm doing it better than you because clearly you're not doing it and let's get, you know, better fix it here, uh, Richard. So that, that's the way we do it, right? But, but I'm sort of thinking that what's fueling that is that somewhere I missed this. I missed that. And, and so you know how it is sometimes if, if you don't think you're loved unconditionally, then you'll do almost anything to find a substitute for that. That's what we do. And part of it is because we are totally in need of being loved. That's kind of a basic sort of need that every human being has. Well, if, 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 I, if I'm not confident of that, or I never had anybody tell me that, or I wasn't baptized into the faith where even before I knew what anything was, there was already that love there, how else am I going to get it? And so I'll, we'll just look for anything that we think can get it. And for a lot of people, it's following the rules. If you just do everything the right way, then at the very least, maybe you're not loved totally, but that's better than nothing. Yeah, Michelle. Would this be similar to core beliefs about ourselves? Would, say that again so I can hear it and repeat it. Would it be similar to core beliefs? A core belief about ourselves? About ourselves? It's like a core need, maybe. I believe is same thing, I guess. But a it is like a core need. Okay, they've done a lot of studies, and those of you that have read different things about this uh, uh, know this too. Is the studies that they've done on people that, let's say, for example, people that come into the world and maybe they're orphaned, 
or people that come into the world and they're rejected at birth and, you know, there's adoption agencies, all kinds of good things for those people. But that original rejection, that original giving up of, okay, creates a, a hole. And, there, and for many of those people, not everybody, obviously, but for many of those people, there's like a lifelong search to fill the hole. And sometimes the search takes that person to good and godly and healthy things, and sometimes it doesn't. But it's that yearning for, almost a yearning for completion, if you will, okay? And that would be a core need, absolutely. So I'm just suggesting that, that what the first commandment reminds us of, given how God did all this and when he did it, is that he says, with me, you would never have to doubt that. Even if you had the worst, most rejected life that there ever was, and some people do, you wouldn't have to doubt this. And that that becomes the core thing, belief, if you will, that you carry with you through life, even when life is just the worst ever. That the worst life ever does not change that. And that's the cool thing about it. That's what we take with us. That's what lifts you up when you're crushed. That's what uh, makes the difference when the world tells you that you don't, you're insignificant. Something else has to come in, see, and be that other voice. And this is the other voice. And see what spiritual rest does, if you think of it in terms of the, our Sunday morning experience as an example, it's not just Sunday morning, but let's use that. Um, what is it that we talk about every Sunday? It's a, it's a constant drip. <laughs> it's a drip. It's a drip. Sometimes it's a water hose, but other times it's squirt gun. Sometimes it's just a drip of God's love, God's love, God's love, God's love. And because there's so much in our world today that says otherwise, I got to have that. I got to have that every day. I mean, every day, but for sure every week. And when you, when you void yourself of that, and you say, oh, that's just organized religion. I don't need all that stuff. Okay. Think about what you're missing. You're, you're missing that drip. You're missing that, that steady influx of what God says about you. And what basically what you're doing is filling yourself up with what the world says about you, which is questionable at least. Okay. All right. Let's keep going. So foundational truth number 17 it's easy to turn a blessing, i.e., in this case, the Sabbath, into a source of guilt and shame by shifting the focus from love to rules. Now, sometimes where rules show up is not so much in the idea of people saying, well, we have certain ways of doing things here, and this is the only way we're going to do it. Now, there is some of that in Lutheranism, is there not? In highly structured and somewhat hierarchical churches, okay? And Lutheran would kind of fit into that. Also, although LCMS is more autonomous than, say, ELCA, which is more hierarchical. But in highly structured settings, it's easy to go there. It's easy to say, well, you know, we have our Lutheran way of doing things, right? 
And if you're not going to do it our Lutheran way, well, then there's something wrong with your theology, right? I mean, that's just kind of where we go. So it's easy to do that. But I'll tell you where I think this shows up mostly is in uh, traditions. How many of you are in favor of traditions? Okay. How many of you hate traditions? See, I'm the only one. Okay. So, hmm? yeah, I don't hate traditions. Yeah. But how many of you who currently now love traditions will honestly admit that at one time in your life, you didn't care for them. Oh yeah. You guys are so fake. Let me tell you. (laughs) Come on. Well, so again, it's kind of this idea that what happens when my tradition collides with your tradition? See, I always love it in uh, doing premarital counseling. When we get to talk about the husband to be and the wife to be, And on paper, they say, oh, we love each other and love will keep us together and we will have all this wonderful life together and we will never be mad at each other about anything. Right. And I just love that moment because I just want to go pop just like that. (laughs) Because what I talk about then is, okay, what, how do you do Christmas? (laughs) Right. See, this is why premarital is so fun. I love doing this. It's just a blast. How do you do Christmas? Because it's in those high holy days of, you know, between basically now it's between thanks. I mean, not Thanksgiving. It's been Halloween almost. But it's that that long stretch where that's where how we do things around here. It shows up the most. Okay. And so that's when that shift occurs. Yeah. Keith, you had your hand. Same thing you asked him. How they do Christmas. How they do Christmas. Yeah, no, that's, that's the one, uh, right? Uh, that's the biggest one. So, so it, it, it is easy to turn our, our, our focus and what we, what we derive a lot of satisfaction from then, from love and the opportunity to have this kind of love time with each other to know there's only one way to do it. And if you don't do it my way, there's something wrong with you, right? Yeah, Carl. During our trip to Israel, in one of the hotel uh, hotel, one of our people got off the elevator and there was a lady absolutely distraught, in tears. And she went up to the lady and said, can I help you? And she said, yes, yes, can you come into my room and turn off the lights? Oh, because it was a Sabbath? It was Sabbath. Yeah. Oh, it was. She couldn't yeah. reach up. She could be totally distraught and upset, yeah. but she couldn't reach up and hit one button. See, uh, when you tell that story, I'm thinking, I know. I, it, it's, to me, that's sad. I, maybe I don't know if it's to her, but it's to be so fearful that you would do it wrong. And maybe that touches a spot inside of us, a, a lot of us, okay? When, because I think sometimes there is an approval hierarchy that maybe is just part of life. But when it gets really accentuated in that way, then it's like, whoa, that is like going way over the top. And yet you would say she's devout, right? I mean, to have some sympathy here, empathy for her, she, she is devout. I mean, she's, she's clearly wanting to do God's will, clearly wanting not to displease him in some way. But obviously there would be an extreme. And we maybe we, from our perspective, probably would say that that's what that is. All right. Let's see what uh, some little notes here. So notice that Jesus says to the Pharisees, something greater than the temple is here. 
And we've kind of covered this. Over time, the religious leaders had lost sight of the spiritual purpose of the Sabbath, which was to rest in the joy of forgiveness. Obedience to the Sabbath rituals had become their idol. And I think that's, that's just a good caution for all of us. When we get a little bit too uppity in thinking that our way is the only way, you know, like some of the worship wars that go on in many church bodies over, can you worship God only with the hymnal or can you actually have a screen up front in the church? You know, these are things that some churches, they split over. And you think, how in the world did we get from thinking that this is a, a day of joy and forgiveness and God's mercy and love and all those things to now where I'm not going to like my neighbor because, uh, you know, you happen to like a screen. Have you noticed, by the way, those of you in early, how many uh, uh, clapping people are now in early service? Have you noticed that? <laughs> See, I think what's occurred... I've been, I've been tracking this. I keep little graphs in my head, you know, on these things. And I've noticed over the years that maybe what's happening is some of the clapping people from the late service have infiltrated <laughs> the early service. And now the early service, who knows what's going to happen now with the early service. I mean, you know, there used to be some things we could really count on and now everything's changed. I don't know what, where's the world coming to, right? <laughs> But I love it. I love it. It's fantastic. All right. So what does Jesus say? He says, I desire what? Mercy, not sacrifice. So the gift. Here, would you hold that for a second? Thank you. Okay. Um, The gift that comes out of this is this. And that's what was missing. Now they could no longer look at a guy who had a shriveled hand who was, uh, was crippled and, and, and have the mercy of God and look at that guy and say, there, is there a way that we can help that guy? Is there a way that he can be healed? Oh, here's Jesus. He does miracles. Let's have him do that. No, instead, what do they do? They take the same guy and they say, oh, here's a great way to trap Jesus. How did that occur? Okay, so he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, or you would not have condemned the innocent. Foundational truth number 18. When grace-fueled gratitude is no longer what motivates you, then mercy is replaced with fear. So the other thing that we get out of this is gratitude. And if you and I take gratitude and mercy into now the rest of the commandments, see, that's the lens through which we look at things. That's how we interpret things. That's what we see. That's what we, what drives what we do. And I think that's his point. I think that's why the first three are the first three, because they prepare us for this, but they shift our, our attitudes and you can tell when your attitude is, is one of gratitude and mercy, you have a different viewpoint about other people. It shifts. And there's something about it where you're not afraid of them, even if they're different. In fact, you kind of go, oh, wow. Instead of, ooh, ooh, like that. And there's an awful lot of ooh in our world today. And maybe what's really lacking 
is this and this, and that's because there's not enough of this. Make sense? Okay. Again, these are thoughts percolating in my head a little bit here. Okay, so if mercy has been replaced with fear, then there are different ways that fear shows up. Fear that I haven't done enough for God. Fear that I haven't done it right enough for God. Fear that other people's failures will keep God angry at us. Now, this is a little interesting shift here. I read this in one of my commentaries. Is that one of the beliefs that the Pharisees had was, was that if everybody would obey the laws of God perfectly for one day, that would usher in the kingdom. So if you believe that, how will, you, how will that impact your relationships with other people? Well, okay, but what, what, what's the impact going to be? You're going to be focused on other people, aren't you? You'll be very attentive to other people. That's a good thing. But what are you going to be looking for? Perfection. And if they don't live up to perfection, what will you feel it's your duty, right, as a believer in the Lord, right, what will it be your duty, do you think, to do? Fix it. Yeah. And fix it means condemn it. You become the morality police. You become the worship police. You become the whatever police. Because, again, what's fueling that is the belief that I can live the kingdom of God. I can live the law perfectly. But if you don't, you're messing it up. So, you know, out of love for you, and care and concern for your spiritual life. I'll just follow you around and take notes. <laughs> and then what we'll do, uh, Victoria, is at the end of the week, we'll have a debrief. And we'll talk about the ways in which you've fallen short. However, I am making a list about you, so you better be careful. <laughs> well, okay. So if... <laughs> if you're going to do that to me, well, okay. And so out of love and concern for you and the desire that God's kingdom be ushered in, I will get other people who know you and together okay, we will make a list. <laughs> and going to my wife is not fair. <laughs> but isn't that what we do? And, that what we, and, and the sad part is we feel totally justified in doing it. In fact, we feel like we're doing God's will to do it because that's the belief. Now, it's a flawed belief, but you can see where that belief over 400 years would have matriculated from the point of the, the Sabbath and the traditions and the rules and all those kinds of things. All those things were given out of love as a way of being the, express, the expression of God's love with each other. And, f and somehow the love got lost. And it went from love to what? Obligation. And so that's what happened. And that's what Jesus is going after. See, he, he knew that. He saw that. And he said, you guys, not only are you a burden to yourselves, your own spiritual life, but you are a giant obstacle to everybody else. And that's what Matthew uh, 25, Matthew 23 is about. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. And he goes through this whole chapter of basically saying to them that, yeah, they got all the rules down pat. But the heart is vacant. And then shortly after that, what happens to Jesus? 
they arrest him and kill him. So let that be a lesson to us all, right? Okay. And that's what happened. The Pharisees went out and plotted. So depleted was what? Their gratitude and mercy so depleted that they could not even celebrate the fact that Jesus had done good on a Sabbath and not even just good, but great good by healing a man with a shriveled hand. That's like depletion of this is the, is the harvest of the depletion of this. That's why we keep focus on this. But obviously where there is this, we want to what we want to cultivate this. And sometimes we get in our own way because our focus isn't on the gratitude and mercy. It's on making sure you do it right. And God forbid that you would do it wrong. Okay. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it just makes me wonder what their childhood was like as little boys. And to, to grow up with so much fear. So what, can I repeat that? Parents would have been like mm. to raise them mm-hmm. to become Pharisees. Yeah. So uh, Vicky's asking, wondering uh, what it must have been like for these Pharisees as little kids growing up in terms of the kind of parenting they might have received or the kind of instruction that would have been a part of their lives that then would have influenced them in such a, in such a strong way. Um, I don't know. I don't think I know the parental upbringing of Jewish boys. I I know that those that went into religious life left home at 12, I think, and they entered into a formal training kind of thing, which kind of interestingly enough, um, in Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, like long, long time ago, uh, uh, boys that were uh, sort of, um, that it was thought that they might be pastors, they left home and they went to Concordia boarding schools. Okay, and there they were sort of educated and and certainly nurtured in the faith and all those kinds of things. Um, and, and many of them eventually became uh, became pastors. So that was kind of a, a little bit. I don't I don't quite know if it was deliberately a model after the Jewish model. I don't know. OK, but having said that. I do think there is something to be said for that if it, from a parenting perspective, from just an authority figure perspective, a teacher, a pastor, a leader, whoever it might be, we'll talk about it next week, is, is when this is a big part of what you do and how you do it and why you do it, and that this is, this is what's said and this is what's experienced, I think it makes a huge difference here. Now, is it the guarantee that we would all like? No, it's not. But we can, we can think more about that when we get into the fourth commandment, which will be, I assure you, next week. Okay? All right, so let's take a look at a couple things that, that maybe impact us in our society, in our culture today. It probably did in Jesus' day as well. And that is where it says, a healthy spiritual work rest rhythm can counter the threats of burnout or rust out, which can destroy satisfaction in work. And, and, and some of the best... Uh, a wisdom that there is in the Bible regarding the, the, the uh, uh, relative importance of work and rest is in the book of Ecclesiastes, which, of course, we read this morning. But verse uh, uh, 24 of chapter 2 says, A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. 
So how do you get satisfaction? If there's nothing better than satisfaction, how do you get it? Does anybody know? I'd like to write that down. We can uh, take notes on that. No, I'm, I, I have a lot of satisfaction in my life. What, so how do, you get, how do you have that in your life? Hmm, that's a mystery. What does the world say? What would the world say that you can have a satisfying life if? Okay, money, and maybe enough, and who knows what that is, right? Okay, money, that would be one thing. What? Fame. Fame would be fame, a positive fame, like people like you fame, as opposed to people hate you and want to kill you fame. All right, I guess so. Okay, what else? Yeah, my love. You can find pleasure in digging, uh, digging up the dirt for a garden. You find pleasure in digging up. Okay, so let's take that example right there, okay? So, you know, isn't that kind of gross? No. Depends on what? Your perspective. <laughs> what? Oh, what, 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 what? He said the dirt. The dirt. Yes, and we know about how valuable dirt is, right? Yes. So do we have any gardeners here, people that like to find satisfaction in that? Isn't there, there is nothing sweeter than opening a fresh bag of seasoned manure (laughs) (laughs) and putting that out on the garden and then covering it with mulch where you've turned the soil over. You just can't wait for spring. I mean, it's just, that's a killer. Okay. Yeah. So um, gardeners would say that. Okay. So I, I take it, Milo, that you have found a way to enjoy and find satisfaction in something that other people would say, that's like the grossest thing ever. And how in the world could you like to do that? It's a matter of perspective, isn't it? Okay. It's a matter of perspective. So let's take a look at the differences between burnout and rust out. Does that difference make sense to you if I describe it that way? Okay. So burnout, uh, probably everybody, there's been lots of studies that have been done on burnout. They've done studies on uh, teachers, educators, burnout, healthcare workers, burnout, social workers, burnout, uh, church workers, burnout. So it, the, the, the kind of prominent theme there is, uh, is people that are in people helping professions. Now, that, they're not the only ones that suffer with burnout. Obviously, you could be a, you know, a CEO somewhere, or you could be a tech guy. There's a lot of different ways to be a burnout. But most of the studies have had to do something to do with uh, people that are in people-helping professions, okay? So uh, I try to break this down a little bit in terms of the difference between burnout and rust-out. And then the part in the middle is where maybe perhaps we can achieve some of that balance, that, that work-rest balance. So uh, typically what happens in in burnout prone people is that they feel like that it's up to them to save the world. Now, the way that that translates is nobody can do the job as well as I can. It's up to me. And so there kind of does tend to be a little bit of perfectionism in, in people that are prone to, to burnout and doing too much because the belief is, or the thought is, is that nobody else can do it quite as well as I can. And so it's up to me. Okay. There is a sense of urgency certainly in burnout folks, but there's also at times a sense of resentment. So maybe you've been in a situation before and maybe it was you, or maybe it was just like somebody else where the the urgency to get something done was so great. And yet the resentment was, was that nobody would help. 
You ever been in that situation before? If you've ever been or served in a volunteer organization, then you know what I'm talking about. All right. And so sometimes what happens is people who take on all the responsibility themselves, they don't know how to give an opportunity for other people to serve. There tends to be in burnout folks uh, work with no rest. The Martha complex. Do you have any idea what that might be talking about? Okay. Martha complex. All right. So Martha's in the story. Remember Mary and Martha and Jesus. So what was the deal with Martha? So she was doing a good thing. See, she wasn't doing the evil thing. She was doing a good thing. Okay. But somewhere in doing the good thing, she sort of lost it a little bit. Right. And that's kind of what happens with burnout people. Burnout people are not bad people. They're mostly always we, I don't say they, but we mostly are doing good things. Right. But you lose track or you lose sight of what what you're doing and why there is a tendency to taking on too much cynicism can kind of kick in oftentimes the way then that burnout people will motivate others is by using guilt and shame. This is rampant in the Lutheran church. I assure you. Okay. Isn't that how we do it? it? We say, oh, Anne, you would be perfect for this ministry at that board that we have. And you know, it'll only take one or two nights, maybe at the most per month. You would be perfect for that. And besides, you know what? There's just nobody else that could do it like you. Okay. I mean, isn't that what we do? Right? Okay. So that's what we do. And so then with burnout people, there's a tendency to overfunction. And have you noticed that whenever there's a problem, it's they's fault, right? It, and that's the word that's often used is they aren't helping me enough. When, uh, when Martha was having trouble with Mary, she went to Jesus and said, what? Tell they to come and help me, right? Because they aren't doing enough to help me. That was, that was her thing that she said. And then, as I mentioned earlier, the highest vulnerability for burnout is actually in the helping professions. Um, do you have any sense of why that is? Because in helping professions, the reward is not the, the uh, paycheck. Helping professions generally are uh, on pay scales are lower than people in corporate settings and things like that. So what could possibly contribute in helping professions to somebody being vulnerable to uh, burnout? Yeah. Sometimes the results of the work is not seen for like as a teacher, many years. Okay. And sometimes if, you know, if you're, I would presume, a healthcare person yeah. may, I'll say, get the person out of the hospital. Yeah. But they don't see them fully right. functioning right. in good health. That's right. So sometimes it's just the chronic nature of the work that you don't see the end result. Okay. You just kind of see the moment. I think some of it too is that, that when you're in a helping profession, you're helping. You are. And, and you help in other professions too, but there is a kind of a, a, there's a kind of a wear and tear and emotional toll that that can sometimes take. And sometimes we have to tell people who are in helping professions that you have to take a break. You have to create a buffer between you and the help that you're providing because basically the help you're providing is the energy is going out of you and you're not replenishing that energy in a significant way. Somebody had their hand up. Yeah, sure. I have a friend that was a <clears throat> respiratory therapist in the hospital and they said, 
wasn't that big of a hospital, but it's like the same people kept coming in and just, oh, help me, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. And once they get them, their lungs cleaned up and all that, get their feet on the floor, they're smoking a cigarette, you know, and it's like, so it just got to the point where I wanted to say the next time they came in, no, yeah. I'm not going to take you. Well, and sometimes it's, again, it's the nature of the work. So I read somewhere that the average duration of work uh, in that field for social workers who work for CPS Two years. It's two years. Because it's such a heart-rending, not just environment, because it can be that, but it's also the nature of the work itself. Is like you would have, think about how much injustice you would have to deal with, like right there, to be able to handle that. Yeah. What would be quite a the past trust. He absorbs all of this energy from other people. Yeah. That's right. He's in the helping profession. He needs his rest. I volunteer to help him with his rest. Where is that big guy anyway? Is he, uh, he's next door? Like, when is he going to come back in here? Maybe next Sunday. Okay, make sure that you're all here next Sunday to see. Okay. All right, so rust out is just the opposite. Okay? Obviously, it's not bad or anything. It's just if you go to the extreme of burnout, that's not a good place to be. If you go to the extreme of rust out, that's not a good place to be either. So kind of the rust out person is the person who says, um, I'm going to save myself. I, I feel more exhausted. There is a leisure focus in that person as opposed to a work focus. Okay? And I kind of wonder a little bit, I mean, I know there's lots of reason for it these days, but the sort of failure to launch phenomenon, I wonder if some of that is not about that, that there is a focus in life and the purpose of life is to have somebody else take care of me. And you would think at some point there would be sort of this idea that, you know, like just that inner sort of disgust with yourself where you would just say, by golly, I'm going to do something. But there are some people that continue to spiral in that. So I'm curious if that has something to do with that. The servant who buried his talent, remember that story? Okay, that guy was so afraid to do anything, to lose the talent. He said, I'm burying it. Avoiding involvement, uh, apathy, uh, withdrawal, underfunctioning, etc. Okay, let's look at the work balance, uh, work rest balance. When, when the balance is there, you're serving for God's glory. It's not about you. Okay, that's a good thing. You do experience tired, but it's good tired, right? So there's a good, uh, that's a good thing. You rest in God's presence and you're energized to serve. Again, that's that idea of having that, that Sunday balance and faithfulness and, and being courageous. And then lastly, it's your serve where you're gifted instead of thinking in terms of it's all about me. So, and that would, if you think of it in terms of where are you gifted and in particular where your strengths are, I use the 70 30 uh, uh, formula because I think that's the most reasonable one. And, and what I mean by that is if 70% of what you do is in your gift area, you can put up with the other 30% that isn't. That's a pretty good, you got a pretty good life. Uh, you have a pretty good uh, work setting. You have a pretty good. And so I, I, I routinely run myself through that. That 70% of what I do and maybe 80% of who I do it with, see, is in that sweet spot. And then I can put up with the other 20% and I won't name names. Okay. <laughs> so four conversations that you want to have 
about work-rest balance, and then we'll be stopping for today. Number one, in what situations am I most vulnerable to burnout or rust out? And for some people, it's a flipping. They, they're totally driven to be burned out people, and then when they're burned out, they flip over to rust out. So it's, not, it's like there's not a middle place. Secondly, how needed am I really? And what do I get out of it? Sometimes that's the trap right there. Number three, what boundaries do I need to put in place in my work environment in order to support a healthy work-rest balance? That's tougher because in some work settings, that is a no-no. Even though they would say in the personnel manual, you know, day off and things like that, that gets, you get hurt in your career if you do that too much, okay? And then number four, what daily Sabbaths do I need to put into practice in order to practice the presence of God? See, that goes back to this. That whether I'm working or I'm resting, I still am in the presence of God. And in what sense am I practicing that? Making that my habit, see, in the word, in worship. See, those are habits, but those are habits that keep reminding us of the presence of God. Okay, Bob, and then we need to quit. Ephesians 2.10. Ephesians 2.10. Yeah. And so we walk in them every day knowing that we're loved, not questioning that we're loved. Great way to end. Okay, let's close our prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for giving to us, to us the gift of those commandments that, that they really do um, nail down for us. The idea that we're loved, that uh, we are your beloved, and that by, by really having that be the center of our lives, that fills us with such gratitude and mercy that as we go out into the world and interact with people around us, as we interact with our work and the value of work, that all of that keeps it in perspective for us. So challenge us this, with that this week, dear Lord. Be with us as we go our separate ways today and bring us back safely together uh, next week. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. If you want to join the discussion, please send us an email with your question or comment to messiahlutheranpodcast at gmail.com, and we'll be happy to read it during an upcoming class. You can also go to our website at www.messiahlutheranpodcast.com, where you can find links to all the previous episodes and copies of our class notes in case you want to follow along with each episode. You can also find out where to subscribe to the podcast at messiahlutheranpodcast.com slash subscribe for links on how you can find us on iTunes, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or any other podcast catcher of your choice. If you feel like we have given you any value during this podcast, please consider going to our podcast page in iTunes and leaving a rating or a review. Not only will that provide us with valuable feedback that we can use to improve the podcast for you, but it will help this podcast to climb the iTunes rankings and help us spread God's message to anyone willing to listen. Once again, thank you so much for listening to this episode. And until next time, may God bless you throughout your week. Bye.